BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey, yo, what's good? Check it out. This is your boy, Elder Sensei. One half of the legendary artifacts. You are right now in tune to my man Tim Einenkel at the library on rapstation.com. Let's get it popping, y'all. Artifacts. Peace, Elder Sensei. I'm out. I'm rising like the vapors from the dank. Up the mirror in my pocket, had to break it for a shank. What you think? Walk the flank. Is my mother open attitude? Right hand on the wheel. Well, walk the window, leaning to the left. Riley, the front man for the coup. And Street Sweeper Social Club joins me today on the library on rapstation.com. Thanks for joining me, Boots Riley. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, man. So, no problem. I, I want to start out by getting, if you could just tell us what your definition of revolution revolutionary music is, just for the listeners that might not know. I believe that the, the, the kind of society I want to make is one where the people democratically control the wealth that we create with our labor. That means that the working class has to take control of the system and we have and in order for that to happen um people are going to have to uh collectively run this this uh economic system and we're going to have in order to do that we're going to have to take physical control of uh, the facilities that we work at mm. And rearrange uh, the way that profit flows. And in order to do that, um, people are going to have to understand um, the class nature of the system. People are going to have to understand that exploitation is the primary contradiction of capitalism, not consumerism, but exploitation is the primary contradiction. Once you understand that, then you understand the power. That the that the person that's working at a job actually has, and so um, the key is not just to understand this relationship, but the key is also to feel powerful enough to change this relationship, and to to understand that you know the workers can withhold labor and change the situation through just that. And to understand that through examples, not just through uh, hearing about it theoretically, but to see examples of that. So where the music comes in, for music to be revolutionary, it has to be music that encourages uh, the withholding of labor as a tool for social change. Of course, in an organized way. I don't mean just a quick job. But, uh, you know, it has to 
It has to encourage. It has to not just be about anger and frustration. It has to uh, highlight the actual possibilities and highlight the actual power that we have. And when you do that, often uh, you're going to be optimistic. And so that's one reason why the Coons music, you know, is often like confused with party music or is uh, often uh, seen as being happy because it is it's optimistic. That doesn't mean that we're not facing, that we're not involved right now in a deadly system. That just means that we know we can change it. You've said in a, a past interview that um, what what is important to you about music slash art is that it feels emotionally true to you at first. So it doesn't mean like if you hear revolutionary music doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to like it. And if you, there's also music that's non-revolutionary music that you said you like. Um, yeah. So I'm just curious, how, how do you know when something is emotionally true? I mean, for yourself, what, what are you hearing in the music that you're loving? I, it feels passionate. I, I don't, you know, I don't really know that it doesn't feel, um, it, it, it's not a technical thing, right? you know, it's, uh, and it, and it's not removed, you know, a lot of times. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I made a name for myself making, you know, um, witty, very involved or clever lyrics, you know, like a lot of times lyricists are considered to be lyricists because of being clever and, and, and clever in specific ways, specific ways that have to do with uh, similes, which a lot of times those similes are called metaphors, but they're not, they're similes. And uh, sometimes with metaphor and, uh, and doing these real technical things that actually subtract you, you know, separate you from the actual interaction and emotion that you're feeling. And it doesn't, it doesn't speak to some simple truths, but what it does is it kind of gets that, oh, fish, you know, like, oh, he's technically good. He can do this and do that. And, you know, it's like the difference between watching gymnastics and watching dancing. Right. right. You know, gymnastics is technically they can sometimes do a lot more than dancers can do. Right. right. But dancers feel what they're doing, feel what they're they're doing. And, um, you know, um, and so in order to be that technical and that clever and that witty, you know, we're just thinking about how to impress people, which is there's something to be said that whatever you know a lot of what we do is to impress people there's nothing wrong with that but you know if i'm trying to make a piece of art that 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 really really puts forward how i feel you know i'm not gonna want to be disengaged from it enough to just stick with the clever witty stuff you know one reason that i i don't one reason that I don't like spoken word and, you know, um, and, and, you know, a lot of times I never believed written poets. Like I didn't get into a lot of, I read a lot of poetry, but I didn't get into it because I didn't believe the poet. I could tell they were trying to impress me. Right. Right. Like you don't really feel this. You're writing something so that I can, you know, so that, 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 
I can feel that you're a good writer. That's two different things. I mean, think about the music that really moves you, like the singing songs or whatever, the soul, the funk, the, even the, the pop and the, 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 uh, the rock music. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, wow, their lyrics are so clever, you know. Like, you, you know, people are writing stuff and you can hear them thinking. And that's cool. That's one sort of way. And that's something I've done a lot of. But I think I moved on to actual songwriting. Right. You know. I actually want to go, uh, in your the last album, Sorry to Bother You, um, it seems like you take on personas and kind of like a magical reality. Uh, and I think a good example of this is in the song, We Got a Lot to Teach You, Cash is Green. I was wondering. Okay, I was. Yeah. I was wondering whether your broader exposure to kind of new audiences and new experiences in your career have shaped the stories you kind of feel conf more confident in telling. No, I think it's just trying to tell new stories. Mm. Right? <laughs> you, you know, you you just uh, you know you like. I'm not going to want to write another fat cat and big fish. I'm not going to write. Want to write another. Me and Chief Defense in the 79 Granada last night. I want to write new stories that have uh, different plot lines. That song is also um, supposed to be a dream that a character in uh, the, the film version of Sorry to Bother You, I, I wrote a script, um, screenplay that actually is coming out on McSweeney's, in McSweeney's Quarterly at the end of August. Oh, right. oh right. Um and and it uh anyway and, and so the main character is Cassius Green and uh in that he's having it it doesn't happen in the movie but the song is supposed to be a nightmare that he has. Um however but but it's it's a story in and of itself. And um yeah so I I don't know. I don't, I think what motivates me more is trying to just be excited about what I'm doing. And for me to be excited about what I'm doing, you know, I have to, I have to do new things. I have to challenge myself. I have to explore new textures and, and uh, storylines and, you know, and, and ways of writing. As the monster stood before his colleagues, he sang angelically and wiped the blood off his fangs. The papers on the boardroom table were stained from corpses piled on top of them slain. One monster yelled at me, you've got the brains, and traced his claw along the table's wood grain. It smelled like leather, old spice and pain. His assistant, when yanked by choke chain, explained. I want to actually go in. Uh, I want to ask you about a song you just mentioned, uh, "Me and Jesus, the Pimp in a '79 Granada last night off of Steal This Album." Uh, yeah. One, I think it's an amazing song, but also I think the video the video is equally as amazing. Um, there's always been a sense for me that you're kind of following the rap tradition of kind of like a slick Rick. Is my sense correct there? Well, I mean, in those songs, definitely. Like, I mean. You can't do a storytelling rap without studying Slick Rick. Um, you know, he, he had long storytelling raps that were done in ways that uh, that made you interested in him, not just for the, to stick along with the story, but, you know, he, he 
definitely made that very popular. Him and Ice Cube mm. are probably who I would say are the best storytellers in in, in rap. Um, and uh, so those two definitely were on my mind with that one. And then uh, another storytelling one um, from from uh, uh, Pick a Bigger Weapon was We Are the Ones in 90 put on a fake British actor right. in honor of Slick Rick on that one. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, those, those are definitely influences. But again, whenever you're doing any of that stuff, my the goal is not to, to copy, but to take it somewhere else. Right. And so, you know, that's, and so a lot of what went into that song, for instance, is the fact that you know, I when we got our our record deal the first time, I was in school for for uh, filmmaking, and making a movie was uh, cost a lot of money. I could just write songs a lot for a lot cheaper than that, and uh, so um, make so writing that that song. Um, Writing me and Jesus, the pimp in the seventy nine Granada last night allowed me to to put a lot of uh, literary and, and and references to cinema in the way that I told the story. Um, and then I also, again, like trying to take it to another level. The story actually has a lot of layers to it, a lot of metaphoric layers to the thing, um, and and a lot of wordplay. And it, it has nothing to do with, with uh, religion, although uh, a woman took the, uh, Monique Morris took the, uh, the uh, storyline and made it into a novel called Too Beautiful for Words, and she had that focus more on religion. But that, that wasn't what I was talking about in the song. Cool. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other uh, records that I really have liked from the group um tiffany hall and violet uh two different tracks but they really stand out to me in terms of because you're it sounds like you're you're really addressing a person um are these tracks about one person in general or are they meant to be told as a story about a bunch of people you've kind of encountered in your life so tiffany hall was actually a person that i went to uh school with went to san francisco state um Chuck probably doesn't know this, but Chuck, she she also was part of the crew that would help bring Chuck to San Francisco State to speak. Um, and but so that uh, she's a real person. And as soon as I heard that she died, I the, the, the melody just hit me, hmm. and the, the words, uh, the, the melody and the words of the chorus hit me. And uh, and then I wasn't I I like made part of it and I wasn't going to do it because it just seemed I don't know it seemed strange to me to make a song um, it, it seemed a little opportunist to me that, that to make a song from this tragedy and, and I talked to her mother about it and her mother just asked me to please finish the song and so that part even made it into the lyrics so um, yeah that was real um, Violet is a story about one person. Um, 
it's a violent story about a prostitute. Oh, okay. And uh, it's not a real person, though. Oh, okay. So, so, you know, and, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, no, I asked because uh, I interviewed uh, the uh, Bay, Bay Area MC uh, Locksmith about uh, uh-huh. about a track he did on his newest album, and it was a it's like addressing a relationship. But what he said was interesting was that it's a combination of relationships. It's not just you know one relationship in general. It's just kind of like it's too, yeah. Just told as yeah, well. I mean, I think that's a normal songwriter's thing to do. Is that you know you're building a reality. Um, based on things that you know about how the world works. Right. Uh, Barry White, you know, was asked, you know, was, was you know, was 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 asked, you know, about his songs, you know, and whether he really had relationships that were as good as the songs that you know that that's what the songs represented. He was like. No, you know, <laughs> like these are about people that I wish I was in relationships with. Oh wow! So, um, I want to uh, I want to continue on when when you rhyme over uh, and this is in quotes simple beats and not to say they're simple in terms of like easy to make because I don't think they are, but more in terms of like there's not too much going on and it really highlights your voice kind of i.e. Uh, wear clean draws violet and even heaven tonight. Um, is this because you want your lyrics to really stand out more than any others in any other tracks? Um, so it or it just so happens you know, that the bit, yeah. yeah, the beat. You know, I don't really have a for, I don't really have a formula. It's just kind of like the song. I do what works in the song, and I don't like go. You know, there are some songs that are more busy, like that detail stories, like now later that now later that has a lot of stuff going on. And it mind up has a lot of stuff going on in it, um, and uh, you know, it, it. I think it's just, yeah. You know, I take it song by song with what works. Sometimes I just want to emote that particular thing. Um, sometimes it might be that we had a lot more in it, and then that got taken. Then we mm. took it out because. You know, and stripped it down to what it really just needed to be, um, and and so yeah, whatever choices I make will have to do with the fact uh, of of what I want to get across in that song. But um, you know, there's no formula to it. There's nothing where I say, okay, this song needs to be this way. Um, so there, you know, Violet had drums in it and had a bunch of other instruments in it. And so now with that, we we broke it down to uh, to a, there's a quartet in it, a, a string quartet. There's a French horn, um, a bass, and an electric guitar. Mm. Um, and so that you know, I, I just do what works, and my idea of what works, I think is different because the, the truth is, is that the coup has never had a hit. So for me to have a formula that I stick to, you know, would just really not be scientific. Right. So I, I just, I just, uh, I make the stuff that feels good 
And, uh, you know, and I'm open to, because I was a, you know, started out as a producer, you know, I would listen to thousands of records and, uh, and, and enjoy it. Like we would just go to the 50 cent bin, to the dollar bin and just buy records based on the cover or based on the name that sounded good. And we, I learned music through that and um, listened to a lot of stuff when we were first searching. We would be searching for samples. And so then um, I got into doing that and then learned how to, like, so for instance, this last album, a lot of the songs are started out by me just making a bass line on a keyboard oh, wow. okay. or uh, or some chords or whatever, you know, and that with the last album too, with Take a Bigger Weapon, that happened a lot too. And then my friend Damien uh, will come add some chords in on, on this or that, or, you know, or, or on the guitar. Um, so, you know, a lot of it came organically, but the, the education around that, around and the openness to all these kinds of music came from um being a, a, a producer who had to then had to study what these other records did to figure out what i wanted to do you know all right you mentioned before you said uh the coup has never had a big hit so obviously you don't you don't follow a certain formula but what i was wondering is um especially with the current state of commercial radio and the chances of, of, of the coup being played, you know, are slim to none, it seems like, right? Um, do you guys, yeah. do you guys still hold out hope that you guys will be played on commercial radio or are you kind of just content? No, cause here's the thing. We have been played on commercial radio one time in two different cities with fat cats and bigger fish. Um, this girl, Mona Lisa Murray, somehow, I don't know how she did it, and she got us on Power 106. Wow. Power 106 was playing us uh, at least every couple hours, right? It was to the point where I would get tired of it when I went to L.A. This is in L.A. <laughs> right. And in L.A., while they were playing us, we got, we, and, and we also were played on Chicago at the same time. I forget what, the first lady, I forget the name of her radio show. Uh, her her station, but that that station and L.A. played us in those two markets where we got played. Each market sold five thousand coup albums per week. Wow! Okay. Right. So the point is, why wouldn't we? Why you know that proves what would happen if we got played on the radio? Right. Of course. Yeah. But we we didn't get played on the radio, and part of it is the fact that we had connections to real organizations, you know, mm-hmm. to real organizations. So that because I think that that's the part of it that that music is missing. That's the thing is that you know um, you have to be connected to organizations and campaigns because otherwise it's just ideas. Otherwise it's just like professors talking about revolution, that's no better than what artists are doing, you know, because, you know, we're not connected to anything that people can connect to in a real way. But, you know, the coup, what we've tried to do is maintain connections with organizations and campaigns that once folks like our music, then, then, uh, you know, it makes it easier for organizations and campaigns to get folks involved. I want to kind of change 
gears a little bit and talk about um, your kind of your the influ- what influences you in music and your writing process. Um, so the first question is how, if at all, how, if at all, have your politics changed over the years? And if your politics have changed, how has that influenced your music? Um, let's see. I don't think my politics have really changed much over the years. I think that, uh, I think a lot of people misconstrue a lot of our politics to fit into what, you know, what they thought it was supposed to be. So for instance, I mean, people listen to music. Well, our first single came out, Not Yet Free. And it was very slow and low. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reviewers said, um, this is more gangster rap from Oakland, right? Because right. they heard the beat and decided just based on that. Similarly, when people hear, see certain imagery or hear certain phrases, they, they you know, people thought we were a, a nationalist group, you know? Uh, and so, you know, uh, similarly, people think that the Black Panthers were a nationalist group. Right. And they weren't. They were an internationalist group. They were communists, right? Right. Um, and so people had certain assumptions about what we were talking about. Um, also, what we've always talked about is that the working class must overthrow the ruling class. What that also, what that means is, is that there's a certain methodology, there's a certain um, strategy to organizing um, that that um, because we use the term revolutionary, people think that that means that we're down for that. That means that we think. Uh, Anything that has a revolutionary aesthetic is effective, and uh, and and so they're like, "Oh, your politics have changed." No, you know, this is I. I've always been about strategy and program, and that's what we put forward. Um, some of my music has been about people envisioning getting to a point where it's about the battle in the street. Um, but, um, like I always say, like, like I said in, in one song, uh, in, in Ride the Fence, bring the people with you. That's the protocol. Right. Right. It says, I'm down for running up in Congress saying, fuck it all, but bring the people with you. That's the protocol. So bringing the people with you, um, that, that means doing things that get people involved in stuff, not just showing that you are the revolutionary and that you, what you're doing is the answer. No, that means organizing at your place of work. Hmm. And that means starting with ways that people can get involved right here and now. Cause you know, so a lot of folks have, have put their idea, what they were told in school that a movement was about or what they were told, you know, what they were told that we were about, they put that onto our politics, but there's not really any place that people can, uh, you know, so uh, 
I'm sure I've changed. I've changed what I think. It, it, but in the sense that I've changed, it's been that I think more is possible mm-hmm. in a shorter time than I thought was possible before. I'm provocative and pro-stopping them FBI operatives who professional the black man pounds and hand you a sentence that you can't pronounce. I'm also anti-narco, anti-vice, 911 wants to anti-Christ, they anti I was curious, does your love for rap music uh, inspire your activism slash fighting for the common person, or is it really vice versa? I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to separate. Right. Um, uh... I, you know, I, I love, put it like this. First of all, um, rap music is part of black music. And, um, in a lot of ways for me, there's no separations, right? I don't, I'm not one of those five elements of hip hop. I don't believe in that. I think that's some shit that academics made up and some folks that were trying to go on speaking to or some of the early folks like, that, that could call themselves forefathers made up. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't separate my love for rap music from the love for black music in general and that love for black music in general from the love of uh, music, period. But, you know, the, most of the music that we listen to right now is the development of black music. Uh, you know, the, the, the first rap hit was 1963, Here Come the Judge, way before that supposed party that happened with Cool Hurt and his sister, right? Right. And, uh, you know, so we, we have these origin narratives that are meant to depoliticize hip-hop, actually, and to separate it from the rest of black music because, you know, the history of black music is actually the, the history of people in struggle. And you'd have to connect it to that. I mean, when when Sugar Hill Gang's song came around the country and black folks heard it all around the country, nobody said, what is this new music they've got here? You know, right. <laughs> it was something that we all knew. You know, I, I lived in Detroit until I was six and my older brothers and them used to handball and, um, and, and rap while they were doing that. I'm talking about the mid-70s like 75, 76 in Detroit, not in New York, right? Mm-hmm. When And so when I was in Oakland and Sugar Hill Gang came out, me and some somebody else that was from either the Midwest or the South, we said, they got a handbone song on the radio. <laughs> That's because, and, and nobody thought it was some new phenomenon, right? right? It was a development of black music. Right. And so, yeah, you could call call it this or that just to explain that somebody's rapping on it. But, um, you know, so so, you know, I can't separate how I feel about music from how I feel about the world. It all developed at the same time. Which uh, which of which of your song, which either one song or few songs uh, kind of best defined your mission uh, using your music we got the guillotine 
the song is called The Guillotine. Um, and it's the song, uh, The Guillotine, it's a metaphor for the fact that we have the power to get rid of the uh, folks that exploit us. Hmm. And then, uh, which track is is kind of the, for you? Is the most is the most personal track for you? Um, I you know, they're they're all personal. Right. You know, I mean, so and and in different ways. I think when I started writing um, certain songs, I, you know, early on I was like, I don't want to write personal songs. There's too many people that are doing stuff about interpersonal relationships and stuff like that. And I had to just trust that I, that, that if I wrote songs that were, that were, that, that were truly representing what I was thinking and feeling, if I was not closing myself off to writing about certain things, and writing about certain thoughts, and if I was aware of things that were going on in my mind, that if I wrote about things that had to do with interpersonal relationships, my politics would come out in them. So Where Clean Draws is an example. That's a song to my daughter. And, you know, and, and, and the, the, the truth is, is that when we are thinking about interpersonal ideas, we're thinking, we're doing, we're thinking about that with, uh, in relationship to our thoughts about the world, how we think the world works, yeah. who we think we are, all those sorts of things. So that comes out in the lyrics. So there's Where Clean Draws Now Later is a true story that I, you know, I, it's personal enough to where I can't perform it, you know, because it's about some crazy issues that I went through. Right, right. Um, you know, and it would just feel like it's, you know, being trite. To, to like do you know perform it on stage mm-hmm. um and uh you know the, the whole pick a bigger weapon is about a crazy relationship i was in actually you know so it's a it's a it's it's music that is both that is talking about um my ideas about the world while talking about this crazy relationship that I was in at the time and that, you know, had really messed up elements to it. Um, and I related that. To, so most of those songs on there are even the ones that, so of course we got laugh, love, love. That's about real personal situations is I just want to lay around all day in bed with you. There's, um, all of these things, some of those are songs that sound like they're um, just talking about macro ideas about the world, but it's really talking about interpersonal relationships. Oh, wow. um, and uh, on on this latest album, you know, there's some obvious ones. Uh, I mean, My Murder, My Love is a breakup song. Um, but it has to do with, you know, my ideas about what I thought was messed up in the relationship. I related to my ideas about how I think people should be in the world and why do I think people should be that way in the world. 
that has to do with my ideas on what what we need to do to change things, mm. right? So that's what I'm saying is is if you're open to the ideas that are going on in in your head and and thinking about those things and analyzing why you feel those ways and you know then your your music no matter what you're talking about is going to represent your world view and you know so yeah what what's for you what's what's the i guess the best writing environment like where do you, where do you i mean i guess where yeah where... if i tell you that then people will bother me while i'm writing uh, <laughs> What happens next when, let's say, I mean, what's happen, what happens next with your music when you're, I guess, you, you feel like what you've done is complete? I mean, do you go to, I mean, do you go back, do you go to, like, pursue movies, a movie, film, filmmaking career, or? When I think, feel like it's complete, you know what I mean, the music, yeah. when I feel like the album is complete. Or when you feel like you're, like, I, I mean, it kind of like, you know, I, I'm totally not saying you should because I, I want you to keep going. But like, when 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 do you know it's time for you to kind of like hang up the mic and move on to do something else? I don't know. That's like saying, when is it time to stop talking to people? You know, right, like true. all of this stuff is just various forms of communication. Right. You know, um, so um, I don't think anyone should ever stop communicating. You know, when... You know, here's here's a real thought. Like so, when I was twenty one, twenty two, and we were putting out, we we were working on music. Um, e forty and them were twenty six. We thought these motherfuckers are so old to be <laughs> starting out. Like what the hell? Oh, they you know more power to them, you know. I'm, and we're thinking, I'm not going to be rapping by the time I'm 25. Right. <laughs> right? There was a whole different idea of it. Partially, and part of that comes from the uh, disrespect that's given to the art form, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of that is like, okay, this is for kids to do. Like, whatever black folks are doing are for kids to do. Like, you know, for instance, one of the conversations that, that, that I mean, that's said, it's said to be for what? that that's what kids are supposed to be doing, not what adults are. One of the conversations that always comes up is like how black people dress. All oh, black people dress with their pants sagging and they don't dress like kids. They're wearing starter caps and all this kind of stuff. But the truth is, no matter what black folks have worn, you know, since it was talked about what black folks have worn, it's always been that it represents something undeveloped about the culture. So even when black folks was wearing zoot suits or black folks was wearing just regular suits, any style that becomes popular with black folks is considered to be um, trivial mm -hmm. and not serious and talked about as such. Uh, music that black folks make being, you know, one of them. So, you know, like, so we thought, okay, this is something you do for right now real quick and, and get out. It's, it's not something that, that men should be doing, right? right? Because we thought of it, because we had our own idea about it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the truth is that 
hip hop is poetry that's way more important than, for instance, whatever was going on during the Harlem Renaissance. You know, Langston Hughes could walk down the street and nobody knew who the fuck he was. I love Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. but no, I can. I'm saying in during the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes could walk down the street in Harlem and nobody knew who the fuck he was. Why? Because most people hadn't read his poetry. This is poetry. This hip-hop is a literary, for the most part, a literary art form that has the most consumers than any other literary art form. And by consumers, I don't mean buyer, but buyers, I mean people that consume it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, but if you wanted to use the buyer sort of thing, I'd say that too. But uh, the the so the point is that this is music that people can keep keep making. You know, for the rest of their life. I wouldn't. Nobody would. Pablo Neruda was writing poetry in, until he died, right. and a lot of that poetry is stuff that people champion. Now, right now, um, so I don't think that the pe- the listeners or the producers of hip hop are anyone certain age, and maybe I'm just saying that because now I'm older than 26. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I'm 43 right now, but the but the the truth is, I think that even for folks that are young, they see people making viable music that you know some of the some of the folks that that are that are even thought of on a commercial mainstream level to be currently making music and not uh, currently making music that that is still um thought of as viable relevant to the time and artistically looking for looking ahead it are folks that are you know in their late 30s and 40s as it should be you learn how to do this Right. As you go. So, what's next for the for for you, but also what's next for the coup? Um, so, I have a, a a script that I wrote, uh, which is a it's a real dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction, inspired by my time as a telemarketer. <laughs> it's called it's called Sorry to Bother You. Um, the first step is is that. McSweeney's Quarterly is putting it out as its own paperback book inside of McSweeney's Quarterly that'll come out uh, at the end of uh, the end of August, beginning of uh, September. Um, August sixteenth, we have uh, what we call what we call the Coos Shadow Box, which is a uh, it's. It's a concert slash dance party slash art installation, multi-stage uh, event that I guess you could describe as a haunted fun house as designed by the coup. I'm doing that in collaboration with uh, street artist John Paul Bale and uh, lighting projection artist. David Slaza. So, um, that, uh, so yeah, that happens August 16th in San Francisco 
at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, and we'll be taking that to different places um, and and touring that around. The end of this month, we're doing um, look look for our tour. We're touring, doing festivals in Europe, um, France, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, um, and that's the end of July. So um, check that out, and then we'll we'll be hitting. Actually, we'll be hitting Detroit for the first time in like 15 years or something like that at uh, the Magic Stick oh, wow. on August 22nd. So cool. check that out. Cool. Boots Riley, the front man for the Coup and Street Sweeper Social Club. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time, man, and talk to me in the library with Tim Monaco. All right. Thanks, man. Peace. Express with care, go on, draw them superheroes with the curly hair. You my daughter, my love, more than kin to me. This for you and the woman that you finna be. Tell that boy he's wrong, girls are strong. Next time at show and tell, play him our song. Tell your teacher I said princesses are evil. How they got all their money was they kill people. If somebody hit you, hit them back. Then negotiate a peace contract. Life is a challenge and you gotta team up. If you play house, pretend that the man clean up. Too busy with the other things you gotta do When you start something now, remember, follow through Later on, you gon' blossom like a lotus You'll get in the boys and the boys gon' notice It don't matter who you do it with Just remember when I tell you, baby, you this shit <laughs> Handshakes are promises, lies can spoil it Words should be bond and sealed Wash your hands after using the toilet Brush after every meal And also like the sun when it raises thank you for adding beauty to my phrases handshakes are promises lies can spoil it words should be bond and sealed wash your hands after using the toilet brush after every meal and like your granddaddy told me
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.